1: Find a location near you at Bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and A member FDIC.
2: With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.
1: 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later.
2: All because of a fancy bike?
1: Not just bikes. We also make a rower. Have you ever tried to row? Too hard. Not with Form Assist. It actually teaches you how to row. So it doesn't matter if you're a first-time rower or a seasoned pro. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Row risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial.
0: Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 102 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Boldfoot Socks. If you haven't checked them out, you can go online to boldfoot.com. Here's what you need to know. They're 100% American made and 5% of all of the proceeds go to veterans charities. Boldfoot Socks is family and veteran owned and they have got a huge selection of socks. Whatever kind you want, and argyle or chevron, how about digital camo socks? They've got patriotic socks, stripes, very unique, interesting gift packs. If you got somebody and you just don't know what to buy them, buy them a gift pack of American-made socks. You can buy sock three packs by color. And yes, they have purple. They've got a sock of the month club, women's socks, and hey, if you got big feet, you know what that means, big socks. They have extra large sizes of socks, too. Seriously, how big are these socks? Boldfoot Socks wants to give you premium socks at a fair price. And they're grown here and sewn here. You got feet, they need socks. Log on to boldfoot.com and get your Boldfoot Socks today. Well, before we get to this week's guest, Chris Motionless from Motionless and White, I want to remind you that the podcast audio component of Facebook is being discontinued anytime now. Facebook's parent company, Meta, announced that they're going in a different direction. So, if you normally listen to the Mistress Carrie podcast on the mobile app, if it just shows up on your timeline first thing in the morning, first of all, thank you for listening to the podcast. And second of all, make sure you subscribe and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, Pandora, iHeart, Odyssey. There are a ton of places that have it. And if you just like the easy clickable player... You can always find them at mistresscarry.com. So this week, I talked to Motionless and White's lead singer, Chris Motionless. And it was literally the morning after they finished a leg of their North American tour. He was back home outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania, White knuckling a cup of coffee. And we talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about touring, writing and recording music through COVID. We talked about his upbringing and his family, his inspiration for songwriting the amazing relationship between the fans and the band Motionless and White, and we obviously talked about the band's upcoming new album, Scoring the End of the World, that's due to be released on June 10th, but available for pre-order right now. Chris and I realized we're pretty similar in a lot of ways, and it was really cool to get to know him. So allow me to introduce you to Chris Motionless from Motionless and White.
2: And you're listening to Mistress Carrie Hi everybody, this is Dave Grohl from the Blue Fighters And you're listening to the one, the only Oh yeah,
0: Chris. Thank you for joining me.
2: Here we are
3: the day after tour is over. I'm uh, you got you got a very interesting version of me today. <laughs> just straight up, just burnt out. But I'm here. I'm ready to go.
0: <laughs> well, uh, people may not hear this interview for a few weeks. So you're talking about the Trinity of Terror tour. Um, yes. That you just finished up, and you are the first thing I always notice whenever I talk to people is: Are you drinking coffee, and how do you like it?
3: Um, I am, yes, drinking coffee. Unfortunately, Starbucks, but yes, I am. Is that iced coffee? And I see. It is a iced latte. Oh, to be pardon, precise. Pardon me. Mm, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, but it does have an extra shot in it, so you know it's. It's definitely what I need right now. That's well, for sure.
0: Usually I'm an iced coffee person too, but today I'm hot coffeeing it. So cheers to you.
3: Okay. Cheers. Let's go.
0: Where are you right now? Are you home?
3: Uh, yeah, I'm in Pennsylvania. So I'm, uh, we're here for like, I want to say three weeks before we go to Malta with Bring Me the Horizon. So it's uh, just enough time to kind of like get back to, you know, being a well rested individual who, Uh, could actually function properly uh, in their daily life.
0: (laughs) Was there uh, pressure for you to move out of Pennsylvania and move to uh, L.A.? And now it seems Nashville is the place where all the rock bands are moving.
3: uh, Not, I wouldn't say pressure, more just like a lot of people there. It's like, you got to go to L.A., you got to go to L.A. Or like, man, do you ever think about what your life would be like if you lived in L.A.? And I I reply with, yeah, fucking broke. (laughs) Because... I don't know anybody that lives in LA that's not struggling financially just because of how expensive it is and while I wouldn't put myself in that position, I still don't I don't want to know I don't want I, I'd rather live in like a, a scenario where I have some sort of financial freedom than feeling like I have to count pennies just to live where I live and you know some people that works for and good for them and it doesn't work for me.
0: Well, I think there's a certain kind of mindset, too. I mean, you're a Pennsylvania guy, so we'll call you a Northeast person. Oh,
3: yeah. Oh, yeah. Those of through. us
0: Northeasterners uh, can sometimes uh, find it difficult to relocate because we're kind of set in our ways.
3: I do agree. I think if you're, I mean, it's of course, specifically New York, New Jersey. I mean, if you're New York, New Jersey, you are like, that's in your blood and you're not going anywhere else.
0: Boston, too.
3: about yes boston too any of any of those like like i just see them as just like hard exclamation point type of people yeah Yeah, you're not going anywhere else especially not la yeah Um,
2: no
3: yeah for for me i'm kind of like uh not necessarily in the sticks but definitely not like major city type vibe i'm outside of philly and new york equally so i i can see moving to one of those places and enjoying it for a little while but i'm much more of like i just want seclusion i want quiet i don't want anything that la typically brings like trap you know i've spent so much time there doing our records that i could say that i've done a more than a trial run of living there and it's just it's too much for me
0: do you think so. that that might bring out a little bit of the edge in your records, recording them in a place that makes you so edgy and angry? <laughs> uh,
3: <laughs> um, I'm not sure if I would say that, but it's you could talk to my producer, Drew, and uh, ask him if uh, it brings out some edge in my attitude on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Drew. But yeah, that, that certainly could get to the point where I would show up and I'm already raging from whatever morning excursion I had to take to get to the studio. Um, but I guess, yeah, maybe that does aid in some of the aggressiveness that goes into the songs.
0: You're talking about going to Malta with bring me the horizon. Uh, just a little while ago, the idea of going to Malta would have been nearly impossible. Did you hunker down at home in Pennsylvania? Where were you when kind of everything went nuts?
3: Uh, yeah, I was here and <clears throat> I, uh, I, I don't know if I necessarily like, I don't know. I, to me, what it hit in, in March was in a lockdown. So like, I just kind of saw an opportunity to start working on music kind of soon on. So being close to Syracuse, my best friend, uh, JD lives in Syracuse. And he is actually who co-produced this new record that we have coming out. So um, I spent more time there than anywhere else. I just went to went there. Um, stayed in Syracuse and hung out with him and his wife Gina for like weeks and weeks and weeks. We worked on all kinds of music stuff, whether it be new record or we did like a bunch of cool projects that we call the quarantine experiments. Um, So I, I just saw the opportunity to do that and that's primarily what my focus was for the downtime.
0: I share your uh, need for peace and quiet I think I think the music business can be so loud and crazy that wanting to kind of escape that. I was really glad that I was surrounded by trees, my vegetable garden, you know, Mm. able to go outside when I had to stay home as opposed to being in a giant city and feeling (sighs) like a rat in a cage.
3: Yeah, I I have friends that you know, have experienced that, like, especially like LA friends who were just like, yep, I've been in my apartment. And if you even walk outside, it's like, you're living in a, like an apocalyptic movie. Um, I was very happy that I did not have to go through that because it just sounds so like it's, it's secluded in the wrong way. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I tried to just either be around friends or be alone and, um, it worked out for me. So I'm not, I'm not complaining.
0: We're just now starting to get this first wave of what I think is going to be an amazing 12 to 18 months of new music coming out that all of the artists who couldn't do anything else just Mm -hmm. poured themselves into this music. Do you think that this new record would have sounded this way if it was written just in between touring cycles like you normally would have?
3: No, not at all. Um, The major key element of this record was the time that we had. there's there's a you know when bands go do records i feel like it depends on what level of, a, of an artist you are like if you can put out a record every five years and still have that be kind of advantageous to your career then you know good for you but for our level of of bands i feel like there is a sense that there's urgency all the time if you are not creating and putting out content you run the risk of a cool down or you lose your momentum or fans start to move on and while i recognize that our fan base is so die hard and built in that they will wait it out i mean they, proven by it's been you know this record's going to come out three years and three days i think three years and three days after the last record and they're still very excited so i i know that there is a little bit of freedom in that but bands feel like you just have to crank it out go 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 And I feel like that puts such an insane restriction on your creative process. This time for us, it was all about getting rid of that and just doing whatever we wanted to do. We wrote... I don't even know how many songs there were to pick from. I think our our first draft vote was like 60 songs um, that we started with. And that was really cool. It was frustrating, but really cool to be able to have that. And I think it makes for a better record when you have the availability to just draft, draft, draft over and over and over. Take your time recording it. It, Yeah. Long story short, time is key in creating anything.
0: It makes you look at artists that were so influential in their, in their time and continue to be like the Beatles and Zeppelin who literally were able to, well, at least Led Zeppelin for a while, the Beatles not so much tour and yet release a record every year. And they were all good. That's witchcraft. Uh, How did they do that?
3: (laughs) uh, Perhaps that's uh, what separates, you know, that stuff from now. Not saying that the format of releasing music and how bands do music now is better or worse. um, But I, I, I don't know. I mean, none of those artists in that time period had any of the advantages that anyone currently has. And you listen to like raw stems or you listen to, just what they did. And it's kind of mesmerizing in its entirety, you know, to not only to just tour and put a record out, but to just have the, the insane raw talent to do things in a way that nobody does now. it, it's kind of mind blowing, but um, I I mean, I guess, yeah, their, their efforts paved the way for artists like now right now to do Things that we do, and still try to incorporate those values.
0: Can we talk <clears> about um, you growing up a little bit and, and your inspiration growing up? Are you born and raised in Scranton? Is that where you grew up?
3: Yeah, um, a little little suburb outside called Pittston, um, Pittston, Pennsylvania. Um, yes, yeah, so that's where I've I've been born. I lived here, um, yeah. For I mean, I I in the since the band has become a thing um and a full-time thing i don't technically live here uh anymore it's just a a stopping point but it is home base and this is where all of our where our warehouse is here our rehearsal everything um so it is home base and i don't know how much it's aided in any development or uh negative development in <laughs> my life but uh yeah it's it's You're right. I'm very, I'm a Northeastern person for sure.
0: Do you come from a musical family? It seems to be something that gets kind of passed down, whether it be environmental or genetic or whatever.
3: Uh, Not directly from my parents, but my grandfather was huge musician. Like he, he, uh, I've said it before. He's kind of the person I kind of hold responsible for planting the musical seeds in my brain. When I was a kid, he tried so hard to like get me to play guitar and introduce me to playing music, but I just didn't. I didn't have any interest in it. I wanted to play video games and ride my bike and just be a kid. And I, years and years later, once music came kind of back into my life, or the prospect of playing music. Uh, came back into my life, I clung to it. And that's then became the entirety of my life. Um, so I, I certainly hold him responsible for planting the seeds. And then his son, my uncle, as well as um, another uncle on a different side of the family, both played guitar. So I feel like I've, I've been around it. And um, they're who are who responsible for putting the guitar in my hands later in life. And at that moment, it just never stopped. So. Not so much my parents, besides being fans of music and always listening to music, um, but definitely other parts of my family, for sure.
0: What was the soundtrack to your childhood? What was the stuff that you got exposed to? Because I have a music theory. You let me know if it's true that you get gifted music by your surroundings, whether it be the cool uncle, your parents. And Mm -hmm. then one day you wake up and there is a line in the sand because you discover a song, an album, an artist, and you go, okay, hold on. This is mine. And it changes the rest of your life.
3: Yep. Uh, That for me would be Metallica. Um, I grew up, my, my musical soundtrack growing up would be my mom is super into the Beatles. Um, She loves old she, she likes a lot of like the older like doo wop stuff, um, which I think is great. And I, anytime I hear it, I'm like, oh, I know this song. I know this song. Isn't it amazing that it you know
0: all the words to all those songs, yes. even though you haven't yeah. heard them since you were like eight? My mom, yes. same thing.
3: Yep. Um, a lot of that stuff was big from her side. And then my dad was uh, really into like classic rock. So Zeppelin, um, even stuff like Rush. I grew up, you know, when, when I started playing drums. Tom Sawyer was like the song I tried to learn first. Of course, you know, great, great track to try to learn on drums. Yeah. Way, first to start,
0: way to start. Way to start slow.
3: Yeah. Um, so that was more his side and then had the other stuff from my mom. And then it was um, my uncle who put the guitar in my hand at the very first, or I should say the second riff. First riff was the Johnny B. Good riff that everyone learns. Second riff was Enter Sandman and I got the Black Album. and. You know that's the that's the lightning rod moment or the the fuse being lit moment that just exploded for me to become so into music and playing guitar and drums and from there from there it was like immediately right into other stuff like corn and Manson and it it went in all different directions. There was the pop punk stuff like Blink One Eighty Two and uh, then you had the punk stuff. Uh, like misfits and AFI, so like it, it, it all seemingly at one moment just blew up for me. But Metallica was the gateway.
0: Do you still have that guitar?
3: I do. I've actually have, I have most of every guitar I've had throughout my history, except for one, which isn't really super important to my guitar history. <laughs> um, but I do have the first one. Yeah.
0: When you when you were growing up listening to all of this stuff, I feel like. I feel like parents, I don't have any musical abilities, so I'll just throw that right out there because you don't know me very well. (laughs) Um, I feel like as a parent, when you have a baby, you have a lot of plans for them. Being in a rock band is not something that they have as that life plan for you. How did they handle that earthquake moment from Metallica on where you were like, no, I don't want to be an accountant. I want to be in a rock band.
3: Uh, I think from what I remember my dad was cool with it because he was into the stuff not that I like he liked Metallica and um, Megadeth and Iron Maiden which is all the bands I started that was the and you know as I mentioned with Rush like <clears throat> the bands that I immediately went for learning their songs he at least liked so it wasn't like I was blasting you know Slipknot around my dad to the point where he, I mean, I was at one point, but not, not initially. So I think that that kind of got a bit of respect towards it to where it was like not insufferable for him. Uh, My mom, not so much. She, she's been supportive, but um, not in the sense that like, she was able to like link on the, the enjoyment over the music. Um, But yeah, both of them early on were just like, yeah, I mean, if this, this is what you want to do then you know go ahead but i don't think that anyone thought it was really like a serious thing until maybe right out of high school when you could see things were like clicking and really noticing that like this this is i'm a lifer and i'm not going to let this slip from my life like this is all i'm going to do and i know that and i'm going to make that happen and manifest that and i think that they were able to recognize that so they were cool with it
0: when you were growing up, whether it be playing the drums or guitar or whatever it was, what came first, trying to play an instrument or did you always have a proficiency for songwriting and lyric writing? Were you writing poems and stuff like that growing up?
3: Um, I think I was pretty much like every kid who just, you know, was writing lyrics that felt like you were writing Linkin Park lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, just like trapped in my mind and in this cell of misery, you know, very, very like that era of not saying that I'm not relating. I'm not saying anything negative towards Linkin Park. I mean, like we were writing our terrible version of what great lyrics you were hearing on songs like, you know, the, the Hybrid Theory record or... Uh, any of the, that era of bands. And from your um, limited
0: life experience, because at that point in the age that you were, the world is a pretty small place.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, this Yeah, this is very obviously still in school and um, you don't really get to expand to meet other people. This is prior to really social media blowing up. I think this might be during like AIM and early, early MySpace days, <laughs> if maybe even before that. Cell phone, so like yeah, you're right. Very very minimal exposure to the world, um, and then at that time, you know, it's interesting because my family was supportive of actually the the music I I was playing, like the instruments, but not so much supportive. Eventually, as I started to migrate into looking a certain way, that was where the the, the divide became troublesome. Where I started to wear makeup and want wear all black and everything. And then that, that's seemingly where it got rough and, um, caused, you know, a serious divide, but I just stuck to what I wanted to do. And I, uh, got tattoos without telling my parents and <laughs> piercings. And yeah, um, it, it was, I don't know, I guess not, not the most rebellious high school teen story, but certainly some critical moments of being rebellious that, empowered me to just do what I wanted and I still carry that with me today
0: my mom cried when I dyed my hair purple and it's been purple it's been the same color it's looked the exact same since she she told me when you move out of my house and you turn 18 you can do what you want and I yeah had gone to college before I was 18 and the day I turned 18, I dyed it purple and it's been purple ever since. And when so she great. saw me that first weekend, she cried <sighs> and now she's like, Oh, I think you're due for a little touch up.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh it's, I'm sure it's a big adjustment for a parent to, like you said, have a vision of what you would hope. Yeah. Like if you could write, if you could write the story of your own child, I'm sure. I don't know if really anybody has any, you know, like, has anyone had their child, their their spawn's prophecy fulfilled for them? I mean, I, I don't know. Um,
0: she wanted me to be uh, a nurse. Obviously, that didn't work out.
3: Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you were to become a nurse, I'm sure you'd be everyone's favorite nurse, because I feel like people gravitate towards people who have something about them that's not, you know, conventionally normal. So... At least you'd, be, you'd make a great nurse. Yeah, you wake feel.
0: up from a coma and you and you think you're in some kind of Marilyn Manson video or something <laughs> with a nurse that looks like me. <laughs>
3: That's funny.
0: I don't know if that would work out or not. Um, so, talking about songwriting, what is your process like? Because all the artists that I talk to, everyone has kind of a different process of how they get to that end point of releasing a record. So how does it start for you? A lyric idea, a melody idea, a riff? Where does the original inspiration come from?
3: Uh, I would say nine times out of 10, it's a, it's a search for the riff. Um, I have a really hard time writing. Well, I, can, I can't write some, oh my God, this is such a complicated answer. So I'm trying to like condense my thoughts. No, I don't
0: have to condense uh, it. This is, this is interesting stuff for me, so.
3: Okay, all right. Um I've been known to ramble on occasion. So, I'm, uh, I'm trying hello, to, yeah. I
0: ramble for a living.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I typically cannot write a song based on like a melody first. Like, I hear artists talk about, oh, I had this melody that I put a lyric to, and then we wrote the music around it. And my brain is just like, what the, f- how do you do what? That does not compute in- for me. I can have an idea of a subject or a topic. That I could base the music around, and then I fill in the lyrics. Or it, it could be any way, but primarily, eight nine times out of ten, it's a search for the riff. It's a search for a chord progression, and then I start to get a sense of okay, this song feels like this emotion, or this song is you know super pissed off and needs accompanying lyrics to enhance, or not even enhance, but just feel. Um, very present in the music in the same way. So I I usually just look for that first and build a song musically almost entirely. Um, and then that's when I start the melodies and then I write the lyrics. So I can't even write the lyrics until I know what the melodies make me feel over the music. Um, sometimes I'll have a lyric, like a, a one-liner or a, a money line as some people refer them to refer to them as and uh, that'll help but it's very primarily the music then the melodies then the lyrics Do
0: you jog and like log these kind of ideas as they come or like I'll give you examples Jerry Cantrell told me that when he gets a riff idea he sings it into his phone and records it but oh, yeah. but Zach Wild told me that he doesn't write music unless he sits down in a space to record a specific project. And when he starts working on a song, it's the only thing he works on. And he goes from beginning to end, and the song is done, and then it's over, and he's on to the next. Those are two completely different processes.
3: That, that, the Zach Wild process would never work for me because I'm <laughs> con- constantly revising, constantly challenging the song itself and what limits it could go to. There there are songs that have existed in our bank for, you know, five, six, ten years that are still being revised to this day that haven't made it on a record because they're just not there yet. Um, there's a song we've had since 2016 that was this close, <laughs> this close to going on our record. And it's just it's just not there yet. And I, I could never just be like, here it is, done, close the book it makes it or it doesn't. And then that's it. It just goes into the vault. Like I have to constantly be challenging it to trying to beat it, trying to make it the best it could be challenging myself. Um, but yeah, I'm more in the sense of what Jerry would do, which is if I have an idea, sing it in my phone, many songs, I've woken up from a dream and just hummed into my phone. And then the next morning I'm left to try to decipher what the <laughs> hell I, it's just like, and I, I, don't sometimes it's like what the hell was I singing or what did I hear I have to try to remember it or figure it out but um yeah mostly I'm gonna I'm gonna jot the ideas down approach them later
0: well you have to live with it once it's out right like you get to own it until you let us have access to it and then once the horse is out of the barn you can't go back. So so you seem like the kind of person that would drive you crazy if you released it and it were 98% done because that last 2% that you had to listen to and deal with for the rest of your life would drive you crazy.
3: Welcome to our second record. <laughs> <sighs> I, think, we, uh,
0: I think you and I have the same kind of mentality because that would drive me nuts too.
3: Yeah. I, uh, I... Definitely, sometimes it's it's just a... You're just a victim of time and circumstance. That's primarily the issue with our second record is that um, circumstances were really dark and grim and time was incredibly short and the pressure on us. It was our second record. We were coming off of something that was a pretty landmark or monumental moment for the band and um, trying to follow that up. You know, I feel like it's kind of a classic story. of The second record the of sophomore ma- jinx.
0: It's, it's a yeah, famous thing yeah. in rock. Yeah.
3: Very much. And we are totally a victim to that, but somewhat a victim of our own doing and others just of circumstance. But um, I, I think think, thankfully over time as time heals all or most um, I've been able to look at it and just accept it for what it is. And yeah, um, I did sort of get a second chance at it, sort of, to the point where it made me a little bit more tolerable or made it tolerable to have in our catalog. Um, It's actually the 10-year anniversary of that record this year. And we're like, do we want to do a show and play the songs? Like, what do we want to do? And it's really hard to want to celebrate a really ugly time in your life. But at the same time, the record had moments on it that propelled us into the next stage of our career. And we're so grateful for that. So it's, it's a, I guess this is a really long way to answer your question where you can look back on something that you did and not have a chance to change it. And it's now so much time has passed that you just have to accept it and try to look at the silver linings. And with it, there were many. So fine with me.
0: When I talk to songwriters that write songs from a deeply personal kind of emotional place, There's a couple things that I can't wrap my brain around. Number one, you have to take this thing that came out of your brain and bring it to the band and put them in a position where they can go, yeah. And then if it makes it by them, you have this other person that you're paying to basically tell you it's not good.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And then when it's good enough, you release it to all of us and then... We get to interpret it any way we see fit. I don't know emotionally if I could handle that journey, pouring my guts into something and then allowing all of these people along the way to to comment on it in a way that would make me want to punch them in the face.
3: Oh boy. (laughs) Where do do I even begin on this topic?
0: (laughs) I'm really starting to think that maybe you and I are like distantly related.
3: Yeah, we certainly are uh, sharing, (laughs) sharing a mindset here. Um, (laughs) I, uh, I try to not dwell on the things I can't control anymore. Um, I spent a lot of time in my life being affected negatively by that and, when you are just so burnt out by and being angry all the time at what you cannot control. Um, it's, it's really just destructive to your mental health in a way that I don't want to exist in anymore.
0: They say it's like so, drinking poison and, a- and expecting the other person to die.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Great analogy for sure. Um, I, I think mostly at this point, the band, uh, no one really has like a, a, a different vision or interpretation of things. We all, we're all very much on the same page. And with this record, it was great. Cause we, we, as I mentioned earlier, we worked from the top down. We had like 60 songs that we voted on and then we voted again and again and again. And what was really cool about this record is that it felt like 95% of everything was voted on an equal plane. Like we all felt the same way about most of the songs. There was only a few that were, you know, somebody liked this one more than the other, but there wasn't really like a big fight or anything about it. It was just like, yeah, no, that's fine. This is cool. Um, and then with our producers, they too, I pick people that share a very, very similar vision and not only share it, but can help expand on it to where the band may have like hit a wall after a certain amount of time. And then these people who haven't heard these songs that understand everything you're trying to do with it, can open some doors or windows here that you didn't think about and it makes it even that much better. Um, that's why I love working with my friends. I don't work with people that I don't know. Um, sometimes I have and it's cool. Um, but I typically work with people that I share such a like-minded vision and it makes shit even better. So it's when it hits the fans that is um, the the most frustrating point. Um, when it could be interpreted incorrectly, but because that has happened over the time, it's made me feel well. Where am I responsible for this? Like not blaming myself, but where am I responsible for writing a lyric or writing a, a something that could have been interpreted differently than I wanted it to? Like there is a, a certain level of like that's on you because you didn't say enough of what you should have said. And that has kind of propelled me into wanting to be a much, much better, concise lyricist. And I find a silver lining in, in negativity of misinterpretation of the past because now the lyrics I write are so much more, even in their metaphorical or symbolic or even poetic approach at times, you can still try to piece together a mostly general idea of what it's about. Um, and I, I think that that's a certainly a product of having years of the frustration of being misinterpreted. So,
0: well, plus I think with good art, whether it be a painting, a poem, whatever, there has to be a certain amount that the fan gets to kind of pull out what they see and what they hear and put their own kind of life experience. So there is a certain amount of no matter how clear you try to be in your message two different people are going to receive that message differently.
3: Mm -hmm. I I think that that's where I'm happy with now is that the room that I feel that I leave is comfortable room. Like, you know, our new song masterpiece, I see all kinds of theories about what it might be, or if it's connected to other songs and stuff. And I'm, I'm fine with that. Like, I like that exploration into what does this mean? What does that mean? How does this connect? Like, I, I think that that, Adds to like the lore of your band and how you know songs from ten years ago might have played into this song and Easter eggs here in in this music video that go with this. That's something that we intentionally do, and it's it's you can't do that intentionally. Ex- wanting people to explore that and then be mad that they might see or hear something differently than what you intended. So everything that we put out there is as most comfortable as we can be with it to then allow that room and you're still going to have people that are not, you know, there, there are some theories about masterpiece that are very inaccurate and um, it just is what it is. You know, it thankfully most people have made it their own. And I like that the most.
0: I ask songwriters this question and the answers are always fascinating, but it can be a difficult question. So I'm going to ask you as a songwriter, this is this is from a craft perspective. Can you give me an example of a song or two, however many that come to you from any artist, any genre, that doesn't matter, that you look at as a perfect example of great songwriting. To the point where you're like, "Man, I wish I wrote that song" because from <laughs> a songwriting perspective, it's perfect, but I want you to tell me why.
3: Yeah, these questions suck because they're great (laughs) questions, but they suck in the moment because I know that I'm going to answer this. And then 10 minutes later, I'm going to be like, God damn it. I know (laughs) what I should have said.
0: The next time we talk, you can give me a different answer.
3: and, And then you're held to, you know, what what you said. I don't know. I mean, I I actually think some of the earliest songwriting that I appreciated and started to really investigate was as a lot of metallica stuff you know like not only is their music so amazing like it's written in their songs are structured in ways that you don't at least i don't get bored and you know millions of other people don't get bored so they they present a musical uh uniqueness that is highly entertaining and enjoyable to listen to but then you bring in james's voice and it it really sits on top of the music so well, like everything about the band is so perfectly connected and fit with one another in in a puzzle that is just so grand and amazing to see. But I think an underrated part of Metallica are James's lyrics. I mean, you could listen to master puppets and think that you you could sing some of the words and just kind of not really investigate what they are. But when you do, you're like, wow, this is amazingly written. And I know exactly what he's talking about, but it's in a way that's not direct. It's so metaphorical or it's so... Um, just... It's so beautifully written. And to think that that would be lyrical content that you would find in Metallica is not something I feel like people maybe recognize about the band. Um, so I think that song or my favorite Metallica song ever is The Short of Straw. And I, I when I hear that song I think of stuff like the West Memphis three where, you know, people are persecuted and, and unjustly um, uh, tried for, for things just based on um, the will to convict uh, unjustly. And I, I hear the lines like you're many turned to none, stuff like that. Damn, dude, you are, it's great. And then you have artists like, Chester from Lincoln Park, who can write lyrics that are not, in, in my opinion, the most insanely always metaphorical or symbolic. A lot of them are very direct. And you can appreciate that honesty, that open, bleeding heart. Here you go. Here's what I want to say. And I think it, it could be either way. And song, like, songs like In the End or uh, there's many on, on Hybrid Theory that I think are such beautifully written songs. Um, you, you can appreciate both both of those approaches. So I'm not answering your question directly. I'm just saying like, you know, maybe Master of Puppets is probably a song that I feel like is one of the best written songs that I've ever heard and um, wish that I had written. Um, a lot of songs from from Hybrid Theory or just any, many of the earlier Lincoln Park stuff, I think has always really hit home. Um, yeah, stuff, stuff like that.
0: You touched on something that I think is really important, and this has come up a lot on the show, especially over the last couple of years, because I've been having these really in-depth conversations because we've been locked away and haven't been able to do anything else. But the, the idea that an outsider could hear something like Master of Puppets and kind of not understand the depth and, and the importance of the lyrical content. And I think that is a greater analogy for rock in general, Is that people on the outside misrepresent, judge, don't understand Mm -hmm. how real, how important, how smart this genre and community really are. Yes. Because they see it from the outside. And one of the things, as we were all kind of separated from each other, was... Missing the ability for all of those, I call us the land of misfit toys, those people that belong nowhere else except together. Yes. And we couldn't get together and go to those shows together. And that in this time of craziness in the world, the unlikely example of tolerance, acceptance, of bringing in all people based on only their love of the music that we're actually setting an example that the rest of the world, it would be nice if they followed every once in a while and it's coming from the weirdos. Uh,
3: I, I may be biased, but I think that it's, it's all of that. And even more, some of the most open-minded, open-hearted individuals are the ones that are criticized the most for being the type of person that they are, you know, like, so many people in this community have such an open mind and are accepting of things. You, know, you have your people that are like, you know, the, the fuck the normies type of people. And, and that is, I, I appreciate the rebellious nature of that at, at times. Um, but I, as a person who is in this world, I, I really try to to maintain an open mind and an open heart. <clears throat> Though uh, over the last couple, of, you know, bunch of years, that's really tough to do <laughs> with what's going on in the world. But uh, I try where I can, and I think that also we're misrepresented in that we are, you know, so anti-social and anti-this. And well, yeah, we are, but like we're also not. You, know, it's it's uh, it's cool to see that there's such a organic nature of community and camaraderie within this culture. And that's why I enjoy being a part of it. And that's why I want to try to touch people or or communicate with people through music in this culture because they're going to accept that someone could put their feelings out there at the level that many artists in this world do. And they're going to hear it in a way where that resonates with them because their experience is similar to yours. And you don't have that typically with, with uh, other types of people. I, they're not as willing to open their mind to that. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just expanding on what you said rather than answering any sort of question. But I do really appreciate being a part of it.
0: And now that you're able to get back out on the road, can you talk to me about what it means that after long more than a decade, that the fans are there. And talk about your relationship, the band's relationship with your fans.
3: I think that we have been a band since the very beginning that is so rooted in that we are connected in some way at all times. Even if it at its very minimum, if it's just communication on social media, um, all the way to what we've done things on every record cycle that includes fans within the creative process. And I I think that that is widely known as a part of what makes the band what we are. And it has built a foundation or has even just built steps to really being, I don't know, a band that people can rely on that is like out there looking out for them. And you can put, you can invest in the band on a level that's not just the music. You can invest in the lore and know that you're a part of that lore. You can invest in the music and know that at times you have influenced what that music is. We take in fan feedback and fans uh, suggestions a lot. So they help shape so much of what the band does in every facet. And knowing that you're a part of it to some degree is really powerful. and. Uh, that's something I like sharing with the fans. Like I I can read a tweet and get an idea and communicate with that person about that idea and then make it happen in real life. And it's just like, it's so simple. And so just why aren't more people doing this? And to me, it's just, it's not even like a huge effort. It's just communicate with people and get on a level that you can understand one another. And even if it's about an issue, Resolve the issue, and I don't know. Something about that just feels like that's what um, really, really gives the band like its true identity to me. I don't know.
0: Well, I really appreciate you releasing scoring the, scoring the end of the world on purple cassettes just for me.
3: <laughs> yeah, we uh, we wanted to make sure that anyone whose favorite color is purple is represented as <laughs> that is my favorite color as well. Um, so I was like, well. You know, orange is orange and black. Of course, I really love uh, the combo. But as if I can only pick one, then I got to go with purple and represent for everybody. So, we, uh, yeah, glad we can we can be there for you.
0: I've been making the suggestion to artists. Nobody's stolen the idea from me yet, so maybe you will. If you're going to release new music on cassette, having grown up exposed to the highs and lows of only being able to listen to music on cassette. My suggestion would be that you also release motionless and white pencils so that you can <laughs> fix the cassette problems when they arise because they will.
3: Yep. That's so funny. I, I'm so happy to have grown up in an era where I also had cassettes. <laughs> uh, no doubts. Tragic Kingdom was my first cassette. That's really funny. Um, Yeah, maybe we should, but they'll have like a, yeah, like, they have to have something that that uh, you can't actually write with it. You can only wind up your cassette with it, it and, like a
0: tool like they never yeah. came up with a tool just for that. We just they had didn't. to use a number two pencil.
3: Yeah, that's really funny. I I forgot about that. But wow, it brings back many memories of uh, the, the struggle.
0: <laughs> the struggle pull, pull, is real
3: pulling it out and it's just caught on the inside of the thing. And just, you're like, Oh God, my world is crumbling. What am I going to do about this? Yeah.
0: And then you like, then you try to fix it. And then when you're listening to it, you're like, Ooh, I'm coming up to that part that I know the tapes crinkled. Now I'm <laughs> going to fast forward or it'll eat it in the cassette player again. And if now only,
3: if only the Gen Z had these experiences uh the gen z people had this uh experience i wouldn't wish that on anybody and i <laughs> i certainly love uh i love the gen z uh culture and mindset but uh man you guys don't you certainly do not know the the struggle of uh how music used to be listened to i mean i i don't even i i don't even have the very beginning of in my life to understand that struggle but i have seen it go from cassettes to cd's to early digital stuff and mp3s and i've lived through a very interesting uh dynamic of music availability and it's uh it's all come with its own trials and tribulations
0: well t-bone burnett actually just announced recently that he has got a new medium for producing music a physical medium That um, is supposed to sound better than CDs, sound better than vinyl, and it's the music is printed on um, aluminum somehow. Hmm. I was just reading about it. It's called Ionic something, and people are going to hear this and be like, God damn it, why didn't you give us all the details? But it's this new medium, maybe then you won't need a pencil anymore, but you are going to be responsible for Gen Zers that never went through the cassette the first time. And now they're going to get your new album on cassette and be like, this is what he was talking about. At least they'll be prepared. If they hear this interview.
3: I would love to know if anyone that's going to buy them will actually ever listen to it on cassette. I have seen people listen on vinyl and I love that, but vinyl is also, you know, the most popular medium of media right now. Um, but i would love to know if anyone actually either has a car stereo with a with a cassette or a walkman or something that they can even use where you're going to have to go on ebay and buy a walkman and they're really, and really expensive
0: get, yeah they're really wow. expensive we should have saved ours when we had them originally
3: <sighs> i would love to see all the google scenes right now people being like what the fuck is a walkman <laughs> <laughs> maybe cult- maybe i don't know maybe maybe they're aware and i'm just ignorant to what People's uh, historical knowledge on music media and mediums of listening are—it's
0: called Ionic Originals. That's the T-Bone Burnett thing. So,
3: okay, who okay. knows?
0: Maybe there's a, maybe there's a a new thing out there. No pencils required.
3: <laughs> That'd be great. I certainly don't want to have to resort to accessories to be able to listen to music beyond <laughs> the fifty thousand that you have to have now. <laughs> 50,000. Yeah, it takes two things. I'm such I'm such an old guy. It sucks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, before I let you go, you spent a lot of time locked away in Syracuse working on this new music. The world finally gets to hear it. You're headed to Malta and obviously have got a ton of tour dates, big festival shows, European dates. Was there something that you set as a goal for the band during the lockdown that now that the world is opening back up that you're like, okay, now we're finally going to be able to do this, try this, go to this place we've never gone before. Like what's, what's something you're going to tackle that's new in your career?
3: Um, I don't know. I think most of the, the goals were set with, uh, (laughs) let's see if people still want to listen to us. Uh, (laughs) when you're, We did it. I I really do appreciate our efforts that we, you know, call that a little too proud of ourselves or not or proud of my band or not. But uh, I really appreciate that we did a lot of like releases throughout all the downtime to give people some different looks for the band that we've never done. We did a cover. Yeah, we did a cover that that I thought was really cool. We did some new songs. So like there was a lot going on that kept people engaged. And then we did, uh, you know, concert streams. So there were, there was never really like a true like disconnection period. And even though that was the case, there is still the worry and the anxiety of like, well, when we do actually come back for real, what's that going to be like? So the goal was, of course, just to hopefully come back and make sure that people still want to listen to our band and still want to be a part of going to our shows. And we were very pleasantly surprised by you know the first song we put out did really well. Right as we were starting a tour, that uh, I think it was ninety five percent sold in, in its entirety. Ninety five percent of all available tickets for the, for the tour was sold, and you know I'll take it. That's we we were able to do a really rad tour that made me feel like old tours I used to go to where mega bands team up together and go out there and give fans a show together and putting new music out right before and during and have it go. Well, that was really the goal. It's just, just to get back into it and see how it goes. And now it's like, okay, we're, we're back on track. Let's see how far we can go with it and let's set those goals now. So, yeah.
0: So you're figuring it out now about what's next.
3: Yeah. We, we wanted to know what our, where our, I don't know where we were even at to assess what's next. So maybe, um, I think we know what we're what we're doing mostly for the rest of this year. So I think next year is where we're going to take some, no, that's not even true. You're right. Wow. I didn't think about that. We have, we have a show. It's, we have a show in September that we might be doing. That would be a, probably the biggest like shoot our shot moment of just try it out see how big we can go. Um, and if that ends up happening, it will be, you know, my number one bucket list venue to play and, um, different things to try to like expand the band and just like stick another flagpole on the ground and, and be like, here's where we're at. And, um, that idea is hopefully going to happen in September. So yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see that and we could talk in that and see how it goes.
0: Well, I think between all of the music releases and this next 12 to 18 months of touring, I really feel like rock music in general, in every genre under that rock umbrella, is at a really exciting time because every band basically is is releasing new music. And like you said, these amazing tours are going out where the fans are so galvanized and excited and have such cabin fever that it's going to be pretty exciting the next year, year and a half. Just We're all going to be exhausted and broke by the end of it.
3: I see people now every time we release uh, like a merch drop, they're like, well, I guess I won't eat this week. (laughs) I'm uh, I'm like, well, you don't have to buy the merch. Thank you. But you don't have to. (laughs) And it's just just funny. Like people are so excited about the return of everything. And the influx of the amount of bands doing it, like you said, has put people in a position where I guess maybe they have to choose between food or show tickets or food and um, uh, merchandise, which is its own problem in itself, you know, that I wish wasn't the case for anybody and we're grateful for their support. But like, yo, like if you, if you got to choose, maybe go ahead and get, get yourself some food, you know, <laughs> buy yourself some, buy yourself something nice and just celebrate you. Um, and without, you know, putting your money into something else. Uh, Like us or whatever. And then when you have the money to spare, go support some bands because we really appreciate it. And it does help all of us, especially coming out of that downtime where we're all sort of in our own version of a recovery mode. Um, Yeah, that's. That's my best advice to you. Well, there were a lot of people
0: saving money, too, because they couldn't spend money doing anything before. So I think there are those people that had just been waiting to be able to spend money on concerts. It's like they had their concert allowance just sitting there.
3: (laughs) I love that. A concert allowance. I don't know if that's a term, a coined term, but you really need to make that. I had that growing up. A concert allowance. I used to save
0: money. For concert tickets, and that was my concert allowance. And it was like, oh well, I had a part-time job growing up, and there were all these bands I wanted to see, and so I would save money from my stupid job so that I could go to shows. That was what I saved up for.
3: That's great. That's wonderful. I mean, I guess, it, I guess times haven't changed uh, in that case because that's what people are are uh, spending their money on now in this world, which is just, I guess. You know, if it's if it's anything that brings you joy, I'm all for it. So and then, of course, if it supports another thing that you also love and want to invest in. Great. You know, we're appreciative over on this side for sure.
0: Well, it's going to be nice to finally be able to, you know, see your favorite bands again and, and get their new music and to be able to congregate together at shows and kind of share all of that. And I think for everyone's mental health, I think it's for all of us, especially, um, you know, that have been locked in houses, maybe with people that don't understand us, it's going to be nice yeah. to be able to get back amongst people that understand us again. So we'll see uh, what the shows.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I I'm certainly seeing that, you know, that the tour just ended what yesterday, um, or the day before. So seeing that and in my case, I feel like I'm really receptive to forces of energy and and just you can you can feel a room. And what's awesome is that generally on a tour, you go out and I would say half the venues, you get a crazy energy read. And you can, even before you walk out, you can feel that the show is going to be insane. This tour was every show. You can feel it from backstage, you can feel it from the bus, you can feel it when you go on stage it was just there and I, again, I hate uh, feeling like I am constantly trying to be optimistic about the pandemic and what people had to go through but I'd rather be optimistic at this point in my life than focus on the negatives and I feel like that is just an, yet another silver lining of the pandemic is it renewed everyone's love and and essentially renewed their vows with music and bands and live shows and everything that comes with that. It certainly did that for me and feeling that on a nightly basis is all you could ever hope for as both a listener and a performer.
0: Thank you so much for hanging out with me today and for the generosity of your time. It was so nice to get to know you.
3: It was uh, a wonderful conversation that I wish I had more often. With oh, people, so. well, You
0: can be on the show anytime you want, but okay. it sounds like you're going to be very busy.
3: Let's let's uh, we can make me like a monthly mainstay, but next time I'll come back with purple hair instead of uh this half uh grown out mess of my hair right now.
0: Come on. Don't take my thing, man. I got one thing. It's my logo. <laughs> I've had it for years. Don't take my one thing.
3: All right. All right. What's a complimentary to purple? I like I love purple and blue and purple and green. So maybe I'll show up in either one of those.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Right. Thank you so much. I'll see you soon. Can't wait to see you in person. But it was nice to see you today.
3: Thank you so much.
0: There he is, Chris Motionless from Motionless in White. The brand new album is called Scoring the End of the World. You can pre-order it right now and it's due for release on June 10th. There's a link in the show notes if you want to pre-order the album. And while you're checking out the show notes, there's also a link to the corresponding playlist for this episode. I put together a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, and it's filled with not only my guest music, but also all of the stuff that we talked about in this episode. You'll also find links to find Chris Motionless on social media and to find Motionless and White. You'll also find all of my social links as well. And if you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit-rep. The Situation Report is all your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes makes it so easy to stay up to date with everything that's going on. And you never know when I'm going to release a bonus episode. You can also join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. Get all the info on that and so much more at MistressCarry.com. You can even shop on my online store. My new tank tops are back in stock just in time for summer. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
2: cool (laughs) yep even easier than that and with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts is it even a decision that's banking reimagined what's in your wallet terms apply see capital one.com bank for details capital one and a member fdic
1: 92 percent of households that start the year with peloton are still active a year later all because of a fancy bike not just bikes we also make a rower have you ever tried to row too hard. Not with form assist. It actually teaches you how to row. So it doesn't matter if you're a first-time rower or a season pro. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Row risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com home dash trial.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football